I want to let you in on a, a little revelation that I've had. Um, so maybe you're a little bit like me. Over the Christmas period, over the New Year period, you're thinking about 2020. Think about the year ahead. You think about yourself. Maybe you've made some New Year's resolutions. Uh, but one of the things that has struck me as I've been thinking about the year ahead and thinking about myself uh, in 2020, one of the things that struck me is just how important I am. <laughs> I know you laugh, but seriously, uh, it struck me over the years. I've contemplated myself in the year ahead. It, I, I've just become freshly aware of how important I am. Right? Don't laugh. Right? And and you know, I've always I've always known how wonderful I am, but now I've married that with how important I am, and it's been a revelation to me. To such a degree that the wonderfulness of who I am and the importance of who I am has made me realize that actually I am essential to the life of this church and I am essential to the well-being of this church and to you as well. Uh, Without me, we can do nothing. Ever thought like that? No? Just me. Okay. All right. Sometimes we do that subtly, don't we? Sometimes we do that subconsciously, whether it be about our lives or about our families or about our church and our service in the church, whether it be about our jobs or our futures, we can think that we are indispensable. Or perhaps you're of the opposite personality type to me, (laughs) where you think, Oh, woe is me, I'm so rubbish, I'm so terrible, I can't do anything, everything is, for lo- is lost, all, I'm good for nothing. Perhaps, perhaps, maybe you fall into one of those two camps, maybe you fall into the middle, I don't know. Either way, what I do know is this, all of us are prone to falling into the trap of thinking that the year ahead and our Christian lives are dependent upon us. We're all guilty of that, I think. We look ahead, we look at our lives, and we think, man, there's some changes I want to make, and it all comes down to how hard I will work, how faithful I will be, and the capabilities and the abilities that I have been given. So if I rock, well, lucky you. Lucky me and lucky worlds. But if I stink, well, woe is me and... Woe is you too, and everything is going to end in certain doom and gloom. We all think like that, don't we? We all come to a new year thinking about change and what we want to do and what we accomplish, and we think it all rests on us. Well, good news, Jesus speaks into that mess and speaks in such a way as to free us from that trap with an extraordinary statement, which if I make, without me, you can do nothing, everybody thinks, what a big head. But on the lips of Jesus, it's absolutely true. So let's come and, uh, however we, we come this, this day and this year, whether we're proud, without me, you can do nothing, or whether we're fretful, which... Half of the group aren't because they had the anxious anxiety seminar yesterday. So you're all way ahead of us, ladies. Uh, and let me just say on that, 
what a great morning that was, I'm sure. I mean, I was there at the beginning and the end just trying to sneak in. Uh, someone said, well, did you not fancy the ladies' seminar? And I said, I couldn't find clothes that would make me look appropriate. Uh, but what a great morning. Thanks to Helen Thorne. Thanks to Liz who did the food and Angie and Claire and everybody that was involved. And for all the ladies for carving out the time. Uh, we'll make the recordings available, but I hope it served you. I, I think it did, judging by some of the feedback I've already got. But whether we're proud, whether we're anxious or not, whether we feel a bit spiritually cold this morning or a bit barren, whether we're just a bit tired, let's warm ourselves by the words of Jesus in John 15, where he unwraps for us the refreshingly wonderful secret of what, how we're to live the Christian life and the fruitfulness that we could enjoy this year if we take his words to heart. So here we go. I'm going to read from John 15, verses 1 to the end of verse 8. Then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. So let's read together. These are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does, not bear fruit, uh, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. For by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we come to you, and we know we need you. We've been singing about it all morning, that we're only here and we're only alive because of Jesus. That if we were left to ourselves, we go our own way, and we follow the lies and the deceit of sin, and we end up separated from you and far off in judgment and condemnation. But because of your great plan and because of the goodness of Jesus, we can know life and forgiveness of sins and hope. And Lord, as we come to your word now, we pray that the very words of Jesus would jump off the page into our heads down to our hearts and work their way out in our thoughts and our actions and our words and our life so that we might be your disciples and that the Father might be glorified. So we pray for help now. Warm our hearts, we pray, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, the first thing to notice is obviously that this is 
an a allegory, if you like, that Jesus is telling that contains three characters. There's the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. And perhaps it is that uh, Jesus has left the upper room because he was in the upper room sharing uh, the Passover with his disciples from John 13. Perhaps he's left the upper room on his way, uh, to, which is recorded in John 18, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And maybe he's walking through a vineyard. Maybe he's walking through the streets and sees some grapes on the side. And he begins to teach his disciples something about vines and vine dressers and branches. But it's not just a haphazard kind of illustration that he's drawing on. In the Old Testament, Israel was often many times referred to and pictured as a vine or a vineyard. Uh, for instance, in Psalm 80, uh, the psalmist requires, uh, records, you drew your people out of Egypt and then planted them like a vineyard. But Israel was a rotten vine. It was a rotten vine. They failed to accomplish all that God had prom- uh, promised to them to do. Uh, All his plans and his purposes and his intentions for them, they failed. And time and time again, in the books of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, you find that Israel is, is chastised for the bad fruit, for the sour grapes that they've produced. You could particularly read an example in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. So when Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, he's making a very important statement here. It's the seventh of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John. And here, Jesus is announcing himself as the true and the better vine or vineyard. All that Israel was supposed to be, that place of blessing and tastiness and fruitfulness that vineyards kind of picture, but they failed miserably to accomplish and to to do, Jesus is going to fully and perfectly and finally accomplish it. He's the place of God's true blessing. And nowhere else can it be found apart from Jesus. And John tells us, the words of Jesus here speak to us that he's going to be so fruitful that everybody who is connected to him will bear fruit as well. And that's good news for us, isn't it? That everybody who is connected to him will bear fruit. Now, <coughs> excuse me, let's just think about the image that Jesus uses of vines and vineyards and branches here. Because what he's trying to get at is, is something to speak of the closeness of relationship between Jesus and us. Okay, so vines and branches. Now, if we were to go out and find a vineyard somewhere, you would be hard pressed to tell where the vine is and where the branch is, such is the close connection in the plant. It all kind of weaves and goes together in one. And Jesus here is is making a point about the closeness that his disciples are supposed to uh, experience with him. That being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is not merely about just being uh, spared the judgment of God and being forgiven of your sins and just getting saved. He wants us to see here about the incredible privilege that we have of being grafted in to be part of who Jesus is in such a way that his life becomes our life. Just think about what that means for a second, all right? (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, just think about what that means. We've been grafted into the vine. 
so that we become his branches, so that the very sap and life of the vine flows through us. So there's a line in that song that we sang during the offering, his life flows through our veins. That's what John 15 is about. So just think now what that means. Jesus is the blessed one of God. He is the son of God in whom the father delights. Isn't he? And God loves his son with an intensity that goes way beyond the besottedness of any human lover for their beloved. Think about how much you love your, your spouse or your children or your aunt or your weird uncle that only comes at Christmas. And you think, I would do anything for them. I love them so dearly. God loves his son more than that. Twice we're told in the Gospel of Matthew in, at Jesus' baptism and then again at his transfiguration, God speaks with an audible voice. He makes a pronouncement about who his son is and he says this, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And here Jesus tells us we're grafted into that. That the love and the blessing and the life that the Father constantly and continually pours out onto Jesus, the vine, it flows and runs like sap into the branches, into us. So that we share in all that Jesus is and has. And as Matt prayed right at the end, as he was wrapping things up after the singing, There's nothing that Jesus withholds from us. None of the blessings of God's life and love and blessing that are his. He doesn't keep them to himself. He shares them with him just as a vine shares the life that it has with the branches. Now, if you're like me, perhaps you think that you're important. But perhaps more more likely... You're just aware of your sin and your failures more than you are aware of the love of God for you. That's probably a common experience. We are so immediately, obviously aware of where we failed, where we haven't matched up the things that we haven't done that we should do and the things that we've done that we shouldn't do, that we think, well, I don't know whether Jesus loves me, but I think he might tolerate me and maybe I'll get into heaven with my backside on fire. But here, John 15, no, 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 Jesus, the very life of Jesus flows through his his veins into our veins. That despite all of our sin, in fact, in the midst of all of our sins, all that is Jesus's belongs to us. So as the kids Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible says, we You and me this morning, you and me have been loved by a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever unbreakable love. Because that's how God loves his son. And now we are in his son. We experience that same love. Isn't that good news this morning? Like we could begin anywhere. Like Matt began Hebrews last week for RBT. But here we go. Here's good news again. Jesus, that Jesus who is better Better than angels, better than the Old Testament, better than the temple, better than the sacrifices, better than anything you can imagine, is ours. And because he's ours, everything that is his is ours 
too. And so it's from that starting place of closeness and the vital relationship that we are privileged to enjoy with Jesus, from that starting point of love and intimacy and security that Jesus then begins to talk about what life is like if you're in the vine and connected to the vineyard. And the point of growing a vineyard and having vines is that you bear grapes and you produce fruit. That's the whole point of growing stuff, isn't it? We grow vines and we grow vineyards so that we might produce fruit. And Jesus is all about the fruit. He's like, you probably have to be a certain age to remember this. He's like the divine man from Del Monte. He say yes. And Olivia and Rebecca are looking like, I have never heard that before, but your dad will explain it to you. The man from Del Monte, he said, yes, he was a guy who worked for the fruit company who would travel the world in search of the finest fruits to turn into orange juice that you could enjoy at your breakfast table. Jesus is like the man, the divine man from Del Monte. He's on the lookout for fruit. He's all about fruit. He's about producing fruit. He wants fruit in your life because he's fruitful. And if we're connected to him, then we should be fruitful too. Unfortunately, so many of us and the world outside misunderstands this, which is why they reject God, because they picture God as sitting on a throne in heaven saying, bring me the grapes, feed me, peel them, do whatever I say, serve me. And actually, John 15 gives us a different picture. That the vine and the vine dresser are not givers, uh, not takers, but givers. They are joyfully, bountiful, life-giving, generous in their service to produce life and fruit in others. It's what, it's what Jesus says in Mark 10.45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to see that God is a giver, not a taker. And he is giving and giving and giving to Christ so that Christ might give and give and give to us so that we might bear fruit. So the question rises, doesn't it? Hopefully, if you're tracking with me, what's the kind of fruit that Christ wants us to bear? Well, some people will tell you that the fruit that Christ wants us to bear is the fruits of the Spirit, which we get in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And certainly, it's that. It's, it absolutely certainly is. Those things, the fruits of the Spirit, are supposed to characterize our lives. There should be fruit in our lives of love for others and joy at what we're experiencing. Uh, you know, the life we have in Christ, a peace instead of anxiety, a patience instead of um, impatience, kindness instead of cruelty, goodness instead of evil, gentleness and meekness instead of brash, unkindness, faithfulness, steadfastness, self-control. All of those things are fruits that we are to bear. But John 15 doesn't want us to limit that fruit just to good Christian virtues and characters. All the way through the New Testament, it's talking about fruit, 
fruit, fruit. So if you're battling sin and lust and you're growing in purity, that's fruit. If you're battling anger towards your children and growing in a degree of patience and peace towards them, that's fruit. If you are battling pride and now there's a degree of humility in your heart, that's fruit. If you are... battling worldliness and materialism and you're finding that you actually want to be more generous with your money and give it away, that's fruit. If you're battling self-sufficiency and you find yourself on your knees more praying, that's fruit. If you're battling anxiety and you find yourself trusting in God and clinging to his promises more than you were before, that's fruit. If you manage to take one brick out of your wall, that's fruit. The ladies will know what I mean. If you're standing firm and trusting God and experiencing peace in the midst of life's difficulties and trials and suffering, that's fruit. In fact, the fruit that Jesus talks about here in John 15 is anything and any evidence anywhere in our lives where his life and gospel power is at work in us, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus where he is at work in us, producing eternally lasting change. Less fearful, that's fruit. Less anxious, that's fruit. Less argumentative, that's fruit. Less complainy, that's fruit. More joyful, that's fruit. More grateful, that's fruit. More gracious, that's fruit. More generous, that's fruit. More loving, that's fruit. More obedient to the words of God. And commands of Jesus in the scriptures, that's fruit. Putting off sin, that's fruit. Putting on Christ's likeness, that's fruit. A bolder, faithful witness to outsiders, that's all fruit. It's anything and anywhere where the life of Jesus is impacting our lives. In fact, he goes on uh, in verse 16, which we didn't read, to say, uh, as he continues to speak to his disciples, he says, You did not choose me, and I, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, that it should be everlasting, so that whatever you ask the, the Father in my name, he will give to you. Verse 16 is this idea that as we abide in him and as his word abides in us and as fruit is born in our lives, we begin to reflect God more and more so that the things that we ask him are the things that he wants. That his desires become our desires. His passions become our passions. His way of thinking becomes our way of thinking. His way of feeling becomes our way of feeling. His way of acting becomes our way of acting so that we look like The Father, we bear the family resemblance. That's the fruit that Jesus is talking about. He's the true vine. Vines are fruitful. And if we're the branches, then we too will be fruitful. And fruit is a mark. It's a feature. It's a characteristic of the life of Jesus. And it should be an increasing mark and feature and characteristic of our life in him too. But there's a warning, isn't there? I've seen it in two places, in verse 2 and in verse 6. A very sober warning. What if I'm not fruitful? Does that mean, does, does Jesus here mean that if I'm not a good enough Christian, I might get cut off and sent to the fire? Does it mean that if I'm not pulling my weight as a Christian, 
that I'm going to get picked off and destroyed? Well, I don't believe that Jesus is saying here that good branches, fruitful branches, get chopped off. Actually, he's already spoken, hasn't he? In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 31, he said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. For my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. For I and the Father am one. Then before that, in John chapter 6, lest we think it's an isolated occurrence, he says in verses 37 to 40, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So how are we supposed to take all of these things? How are we supposed to say that if you're in him, you're eternally secure, but the vine dresser is going to come and remove some of the branches? Well, I think the point is this. Jesus' point is this, that there can be people who hang around him. People who spend their time amongst God's people in the church that kind of look like they have some kind of attachment to Jesus. They might look a little bit like a branch. They're a bit sticky. But eventually, through the life that they live, it becomes evident that they were never really attached to the branch, to the vine. They never produced any fruit. And because they don't produce fruit, they never actually, it becomes evident that they never actually reveal, uh, received the life of the branch. So don't misunderstand me. It's not we produce fruit to be included in the branch. No, the very fact that we produce fruit shows that we're connected to the vine. But if there's no fruit, then you have to work backwards and say, maybe there's no connection. And that's a sober warning to us all. You see, dead branches, I don't believe dead branches are weak, backsliding Christians. The branches here that Jesus talks about being cut off and cast into the fire are those who have never had a genuine intimate, authentic, vital connection with Jesus. And if I can put it this way, it's the difference between a profession of faith and a possession of faith. We can all say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I made a decision when I was 12. My mom and dad took me to church when I was a kid. Yeah, I said at some point, I invited Jesus into my heart. But then there's no fruit in your life. You've got to question whether it's a profession or whether there's a possession of faith. That's what Jesus is warning us here. In Mark 12, he speaks to a, 
uh, a religious leader who comes to him and says to him, Jesus, tell us what the first and greatest commandment is. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, you have asked a great question. The, the most important commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the, the guy who asked the question, the religious leader says, yeah, you're right. You've answered well, Jesus. But he doesn't say, let me in on that. And Jesus, uh, the implication of Mark 12 in, in this interaction between the Jewish religious leader and Jesus is that you can be near, but you might not be in. Think about the context of John 15 where he's speaking. Uh, in John 13, he's with his disciples in the upper room and they're sharing the Passover together and Judas is there. For all intents and purposes, Judas Iscariot, he looks like a disciple of Jesus. He's been in from the beginning. He's walked with Jesus. He's laughed with Jesus. He's listened to Jesus' teaching. He has been there with him through thick and thin, the healing of people, the casting out of demons, the feeding of the 5,000, everything, the walking on water. Judas has been there. He's seen it with his own eyes. He's heard it with his own ears. And yet, for 30 pieces of silver, he sneaks out of the upper room to betray Jesus. What Jesus is talking about here in John 15 is the difference between Judas's and true believers. Those who profess but don't possess faith. Now, I might have worried you this morning. Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to go home this afternoon and assess my fruit. Good. Well, good. Good idea. Because we might be dead branches and we might be kidding ourselves. But the good news is, whether you discover yourself to be a dead branch or you've been faking it for a while or you just are an outright hypocrite, and I don't know which category any of us fit into, the good news is don't fret about it. Come to Jesus right now. Come to him right today, right now, and find life. Get connected. Don't go from here thinking that you're okay, but actually you are faking it. It's too important. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you've never been connected, then we would love to talk to you afterwards about how you can experience life that comes through Jesus. Now, there's one other thing to say about fruit, which is a painful thing to say, and that's if you are a true branch, get ready, because every gardener knows that pruning is an essential part of gardening. And God is the expert vine dresser. He's the gardener who is going through his vine pruning. Cutting back and thinning out and reducing so as to enhance future growth. I was reading this week um, a lady who's at the University of Oregon and she's in the horticultural department and she does um, <clears throat> seminars about pruning. And she says, the best way to ensure healthy growth and fruit in your blueberries, in your vines, in whatever you're growing, is you need to prune them. And by pruning, I mean, this is what she said, she's an expert, cut 90% of the plant away. Now I think 90%, that's a lot. But she says, no, if you want to prune... Your plant, cut it back. 
And here Jesus tells us, if we are to bear the much fruit that he wants us to bear, God, the expert gardener, comes and sometimes prunes us back. He goes to war on those things that are hindrances to our growth. He goes to war on the things that enslave us, that hamper us from growing and bearing fruit in Jesus so that he might liberate us from them so that we might be strengthened in our connection to the vine so that we might bear more fruit. Some of the pruning is going after idols and our preoccupations and our activities and our desires or our possessions and our things and our reputations so that those things that could easily distract us and entangle us might be removed from our life so that we might strengthen our connection to the vine. Now, if plants could talk, I'm sure they would tell us that pruning is, hard, is, is uh, painful. And it is painful, but it's never harmful. Think about the image of pruning, if you've ever pruned. You don't get your chainsaw out and go, and then just kind of bushwhack your way over stuff. You get your pruning shears, and you get in close, and you clip. And you clip and you remove. And it's, pruning speaks of a closeness and a care and a gentleness that requires a delicate hand. That's what Jesus is telling us here. God the Father is a vine dresser. And because he loves us more than we could possibly know, he's getting in close with his pruning shears to clip away at those things that will stop us from loving Christ and looking like Christ. And he does it because he wants to bear fruit in our lives more than we experience today. And so the reality is that for some of us, many of us, maybe even all of us, the year ahead might be a year where we experience a season of pruning, where God comes and clips away at some of those things that, are, that we cherish, that we're clinging to. But here Jesus wants to tell us from John 15 that that's not... God being unkind to us, that's him doing the very kindest thing that he could do. It might be painful. It might feel unloving in the moment. It might be difficult to see the purpose of it. It might even feel like death. But the promise is, every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it might bear more fruit. He's a faithful and generous and kind and loving and gracious God who holds the pruning shears. It's a little bit like the, um, is it the dawn treader? Um, and the, the kids in, in the Narnia series, they, they go on the dawn treader and they're, they're with their cousin Eustace Scrub. And he... Uh, at one point, is tempted by the dragon's gold. And so he sits on the dragon's gold. And then there's a scene where, uh, in the story where he, he's actually he's turned into a dragon. And he becomes aware of the scales that are constricting him and, the, and the, the, that he's trapped in, under these scales in this skin that's not his. And he can't free himself from it. And he can't get out from the scales. He can't shed the skin of the dragon until a lion appears. And he lies down in front of the lion and the lion puts his claw on the back of the dragon and he cuts him 
And C.S. Lewis writes the words of Eustace and he says, it was so painful, it felt like he was cutting me to the very heart. But I lay there because I knew that in the cutting, there would be freedom. That's pruning here. And in the midst of all of the thinking about, wow, that sounds awful, let me remind you that John 15, here the true vine, he's headed to the cross where he's about to be cut off so that we might have life. So the question, the last question that remains for us that I just want to answer quickly is this. Well, then how do we, how do we bear this fruit? How can we be fruitful? Well, in the first 11 verses of John 15, 10 times Jesus uses the word abide. Abide in me, abide in me. Let my word abide in you, abide in my love. He's all about abiding. And the word abiding can sound so passive. So inert, as it were. But all the way through John 15, Jesus is repeatedly telling us that fruit bearing comes from completely and utterly being dependent upon him, being vitally connected to him. So in verses 4 and 5, he says this, Abide in me and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wants us to abide in him. That if we want to bear fruit in him, we need to be vitally connected to him so that his power and love flow through us, into us, transforming us and producing fruit. It's a little bit like all of the electrical appliances in your house, all the gadgets that we have, whether that be the TV or the heating or the oven or the fridge or the lights or the computer, whatever you have, what you need to do is you need to take your plug and plug it into a socket so that it works. But you need to switch it on and you need to leave it there. It needs to abide in the socket. I know some things charge their batteries, but they still have to be charged. You have to plug them in. They need, there needs to be power flowing in order for your device to work. And if there's a power cut, which there often is in our little area of the world, everything becomes useless. You can't watch the TV. You can't do the washing up uh, or put stuff in the dishwasher. You could do the washing up, I guess, in the dark. But you can't. Everything is useless, fruitless. We need to be connected. We can't just think, oh, well, the... You know, the grace of God kind of floats around in the high-level pylons above our heads. No, we've got to connect ourselves and abide in Jesus so that we're drawing on him and uh, engage with him. And his power and life and love is consistently flowing through the vine to the branches. You know, abiding is frequently misunderstood as some kind of mystical, special, indefinable experience. But here in John 15, Jesus tells us that it actually involves a number of concrete realities, two of which we'll cover over the next two weeks. But in verse 7, he says this, We abide in him by having his word abide in us. So that's one concrete reality. If you want to abide in Christ and you want to be fruitful, you've got to have his word abide in us. And we'll cover that next week. 
But then in verses 9 and 10, he says, we abide in him and in his love by obeying his commandments. We'll cover that the week after. But in a nutshell, what, what it means is this, that Jesus wants his word to so fill our minds and direct our wills and affect our affections so that it finds concrete expression in obedience to him. That's how we abide. We don't go off to a mountain and clear our minds and meditate. No, we meditate by filling our minds with the right kind of stuff. The words of Christ. And as the word abides in us, it works itself out in obedience, in fruit. And we know that we're abiding. But for today, I just want to quickly give you one thing. Because in verses 4 to 6, Jesus tells us a few times, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And what he means is this, stay close to me. Remain close. Dwell with me. Be connected to me. Know me. Walk with me. Treasure me. Rely on me. Commune with me. He wants us to get in with him. To know him. That the abiding that he's after is looking at Jesus. Filling our vision with Jesus. Who he is and what he's done. So that he occupies our attentions. That's why we began the year with Hebrews, because it speaks of Jesus being better. So that we might fix our eyes and our attentions and our vision on him. Abiding is not taking a quick glance at Jesus and then going away and hoping that we can somehow in our own strength just work harder to look like him. It's constantly gazing at him so that we become like him. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus. And as we behold him, we become like him. We're being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. So we behold. That's what abiding here means in verses 4 to 6. Behold me. Look at me. Fill your vision with me so that you might be like me. But in our helter-skelter lives, we so easily, our eyes drop and they look on ourselves or they look internally and we look away from Jesus. And here he says, no, abide with me. Look at me. So the Puritan John Owen gives us this bit of advice. Do any of us find decays in grace prevailing us? What he means by that is, do any of us feel dead, cold, and lukewarm with a kind of spiritual stupidity and a senselessness that comes upon us? Do any of us feel like that from time to time? Of course we do. And he says this, let us assure ourselves that there is no better way for our healing and deliverance. Yea, there is no other way but this alone. Namely, the obtaining of a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. Constant contemplation of Christ and his glory, putting forth its transforming power unto the revival of all grace in our lives is the only relief in this case. He says, if you want to be transformed into the life of Jesus, if you want to be fruitful this year, look at him. Behold him. Become like him. 
So get out your gospel and read him. I don't know whether you've got a reading plan this year or not for your Bible. I hope you have. But if you haven't, read the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then start again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read about Jesus. Walk with Jesus. See him. And then if you've done Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read Colossians. Read Hebrews. Stay in these passages that help you look at Jesus so that you can become like him. For so potent is his glory that as we look upon him, he changes us eternally. Think about this, and I'll finish here. In 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle John, who wrote the very words of John 15 down for us, same guy, reminds us of this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now. We are connected, vine to the branches. And what, has, uh, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes in his second coming, he I'm adding in some words here. He will be so majestic and so glorious in his being that as we behold him, we shall be like him. And we shall be as he is. So contemplate Jesus now. He says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. But then he says this, abide in me. And bear fruit for God's glory. If we do that, what a year 2020 could be, huh? Let's pray.